Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. All right. Uh, now, with that being said, let's, let's get down to our sermon. Um, we are in the closing two weeks of a sermon series we started at the beginning of the summer on, uh, on the book of Acts. And uh, it's been a fun series. Um, it's been controversial in ways, uh, hopefully educational in many ways, as we've gone through some pretty intense biblical study. Um, and uh, okay, so just to kind of set the groundwork as we've been doing each week, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the Christian library we call the New Testament. And they're very important and special to us because they tell us the story of Jesus' life. They start with his birth, they give us like a quick snapshot of 12-year-old Jesus, and they fast forward to 30-year-old Jesus, and we get Jesus' ministry, we get his brilliant teaching, we get him predicting his death and resurrection, which is crazy, and then we see him pull off both his death and resurrection from the dead, which is even more crazy. And he comes back with power, he's like walking through doors, but also doing normal things like eating fish. He's like giving these like prophetic statements about the Holy Spirit's power, it's gonna come on the apostles, and that he's also saying, I've got all the power. And it's, it's this amazing moment of like commissioning and victory for the disciples. And then at the end of the gospels, Jesus does this thing. He ascends, he leaves, and the gospels end. And you're left with this humongous cliffhanger wondering what in the world is going to happen next. Well, Acts is what happens next. Because we see Jesus' best friends commissioned by Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit go and start the church. And that's what we've been looking at. Since the beginning of the summer, we've been looking at the early church, its birth, and the theological framework it provides us with how to do church today. This diagram kind of sums up well where we've been. Right? Um, we've been looking at the ancient church. And how it overlaps with many of the modern issues that the church is dealing with today. So if you all remember, next slide here in week one, we looked at the introduction to Luke and Acts. And we asked ourselves the question, can we trust the Bible? Week two, uh, we came back and we looked at the Acts Great Commission. And we asked ourselves, is diversity Christian? And uh, saw how that threads through Acts. Next week we came back, looked even further at the Acts Commission. We asked ourselves, why is the church facing a credibility crisis? And then we looked, came back and we just kind of beat that drum of the Acts Great Commission. We asked ourselves, does Christianity really have power in this day and this age? Then we came back and we looked at Acts 9, Paul's story, and all the impact he made throughout Acts. And we asked ourselves, well, how do we fight the culture wars in light of that? And today, to kind of keep the series flowing, uh, I want to read to you Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Two snapshots of the church at its best. And I want to ask and answer the question, is Christian unity? And the church is not unified. Our country is not unified today, as we'll see here shortly. But is Christian unity still possible for the church today in our divided country? Now, I'll go ahead and say this on the front, act, uh, front end about Acts 2.42-47 and Acts 4.32-35. These are like idealistic dreamy visions of what the church looks like at its best. 
And we should try to emulate them, no doubt. But I want you to know the church in Acts was not perfect. After Acts 4 comes what? Acts 5, very good, above average service, the 9 a.m. It's Acts 5, um, Acts 5 comes next. In Acts, in Acts 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira, right? Literally lying to the Holy Spirit and getting struck dead in their tracks. So the, the early church was not perfect. At, uh, after Acts 5, you have Acts 6, where widows in the church start fighting with one another. That's an interesting one. Then after that, you have like Acts 7 through 15, where the Jerusalem Christians just have this ethnic privilege that they can't get over for, oh, I don't know, 20 years and many years after. So, so the church wasn't perfect. It's interesting. Our church is a part of a tradition of churches called the Restoration Movement. Basically, our goal is to restore the dynamic life we see in the New Testament church to the church today. And every time I think about that, I think, what a beautiful principle, but also, what exactly do we want to restore about the New Testament church? Do we want to restore, oh, I don't know, the church in Corinth who's getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and had a guy sleeping with his dad's wife? Do we want to restore Philippi where the leading women in the church were at each other's throats? Do we want to restore the church in Jerusalem, that ethnic prejudice, or I don't know, some of the Revelation churches like Laodicea that was drunk on money and power? Is that what we want to restore? I'll answer that for you. No, that's not what we want to restore. But what we do want to try and restore are these beautiful little snapshots we get like in Acts 2 and Acts 4 of a church united in Christ. So that's what we're after today. We're gonna read those passages in a bit. And again, I wanna ask the question, is that even possible? Is this sort of Christian unity that we see there possible anymore? Now, for those of you who've been here, you know I have uh, I've not preached the last three weeks. Thank God for Damien. Thank God for Bob coming back. Thank God uh, for Alvin. They did a tremendous job um, as I was gone. And while I was gone, I got a chance to travel again. Uh, some of it was work-related. Some of it was vacation-related. And it is the first time that uh, I've been on a plane since... February 2020. It's the first time uh, that we've got to travel kind of cross country and see friends. It was nice. It was, okay, now every single flight of all the three that, that Lindsay and I got on um, were delayed. So it was not a great travel experience, but I, I had to be thankful. There was one point where we landed in Minneapolis. We had a 20 minute window to get from one side of the airport to the other side of the airport in order to make our flight. And I was so proud of Lindsay because she PR'd her mile time that day while pushing a stroller. I was like, man, I didn't know you were that fast. But, but we, made, we made it, right? And yet, despite all the crazies, I was just thankful. I'm thankful that restrictions are getting rolled back. I'm thankful to gather together with the you know, church again. I'm thankful to travel. I'm thankful to go out to eat with friends. I'm thankful for that. Aren't you thankful that, that it feels like we're kind of coming back out of this, right? Now, here's the thing, though. Despite all the COVID restrictions getting rolled back, there is one thing that has impacted all of us over the last 18 months that ain't nobody gonna roll back. Not the president, not the CDC, not the governor, not even me and you. And that thing is the broken relationships that so many of us have 18 months later. I gotta ask you today, what relationships are broken for you after the events of the last 18 months? Who are you at odds with right now? What relationships did you lose because 
I bet for most of us, there's at least someone, or maybe many someones. Okay, so I wanna help you think about this. So like a quick, quick, um, quick thought exercise. I'm going to put on the screen behind me several words, issues, events that have happened over the last 18 months without comment. And I just want you to ask yourself, how do these make me feel? How do I feel about these things? I, do not answer out loud. Okay, this is rhetorical. Keep your opinions to yourself for now. But just inside, I want you to say, what, how, how does this land on me? How does this make me feel? Ready? At first, COVID-19. Serious problem or totally overblown? Mandatory masking. Public service or a violation of your freedoms? Vaccination. Uh, optional or not? Or NTI, non-traditional instruction. Helpful or harmful? Don't answer out loud now. I just want you to think. How does it make you feel? Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. C-R-T. How does this make you feel? Cancel culture. Censorship. Conspiracy theories. QAnon. How do you feel about these issues? January 6th, 2021. Stolen election. Or the big lie, Trump, Biden, or someone else. How do you feel on these issues? Now, the reason why I ask the question, how do you feel about these issues, is because I believe you can draw a direct line from that question to this question. Who are you at odds with right now? Am I right or am I right? Because that's the tension of the last 18 months. That's where the relational fallout lies. For some of you, you are already thinking about that event that happened. Maybe it was on the family text thread where you just lost it. Maybe it was at you know, a family gathering that according to the government, you weren't supposed to be having after all. Okay, no, or, or maybe, maybe it was on social media for the entire world where you and your friend had it out. And the relationships just ain't the same. On the flip side, maybe for some of you, the person who you're at odds with doesn't even know. They don't know because you just watch them over and over venomously, unfairly, in an unnuanced way, just attack, 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 attack. You or, or people like you or the, the things that you believe. So you didn't say anything, you just muted them. <laughs> you, un, you unfollowed them. And you ghosted them out of your life. And they have no idea that you've cut them out, but you've cut them out. Who is it for you? Is it a coworker? Is it a friend? College, roommate, an adult, child? Maybe your parents, a brother, a sister, a church? A pastor? I will tell you this, and I've told you this before. At Northeast, we've experienced a disproportionate season of gain 
over the last 18 months as more new people who we've never known have come to our church. Some of them because they found us online, some of them from other churches. I mean, welcome. We are so glad you're here. We've also experienced a disproportionate season of loss, though, as so many people have left. And I am in lots of circles with other pastors, and that's not unique to Northeast. That's all faith communities. And if the social scientists are right, that's not just unique to faith communities. That's every community right now. Right now, we're going through this season as a country where people are finding and forming new tribes, and the boundaries for entry are more solidified than ever, and the level of tolerance for disagreement is thinner than ever. Some say we are more divided as a country today than we've been since the Civil War. Now, I want to show you some statistics behind this, okay? I've got lots of statistics for you. I'm going to give you about five to seven minutes of statistics. And I think they're fascinating. Uh, they're reliable stats. Hang with me here. But it shows you just kind of the state of our culture and, and the church right now. Okay, so check this out first. Uh, Pew Forum uh, did a, uh, a study recently that measured negative polarization. What's negative polarization? Basically, it's just enemy hate. Your disdain for, for people on the other side of the issue, the other side of politics, whatever. Um, and specifically, they measured how coldly one party feels towards their political uh, opponent. Now, you can go ahead and throw the graph up there real quick. I want to note before I kind of uh, interpret this for you, you can see each bar uh, there in front of you. The, the light blue bar on the bottom represents how many people voted I feel cold about my political other. And the dark blue on the top represents how many people said I feel very cold. So cold and very cold, but it's all cold. Now, let me, let me interpret this for you first. You'll see uh, among Republicans, right side of the, the column, it, it says the number of Republicans who view, uh, who view Democrats coldly jumped 25 percentage points from December 16th to September 19th, 58% to 83%. And if you look, all of the delta, all the growth from the 58 to 83 is, is in what category? Cold or very cold? Very cold. <laughs> now, among Democrats, same thing happened. 23 percentage point growth from 56% at its low to 79%. And again, almost all the growth is in very cold ratings. So breaking news, you've heard it here first. Apparently, Republicans and Democrats don't like each other. Now, next slide here, okay, because it gets worse. There was a research paper published recently on negative partisanship by Nathan Calmo, Liliana Mason, political scientists at LSU and University of Maryland. Here's what they found. They found 60% of voters think members of the other party constitute a threat to America. It gets worse. 40% of uh, of uh, voters would call the other party evil, it gets worse, and nearly one out of five voters agree with the statement that their political adversaries lack the traits necessary to be considered fully human. One out of five. Now, yes, it gets worse, next slide here. When they ask participants, do you think we would be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party just dropped dead and died? Approximately 20% of Democrats, that translates to about 12.6 million of the voting population. 16% of Republicans, which is about, uh, what, uh, 7.9 million voters, think on occasion the country would be better off if large numbers of the opposition just died. 
but it gets worse. They also ask if the opposing party wins the, and this is before the 2020 election, if the opposing party wins the 2020 presidential election, do you feel violence would be justified? 18.3% of Democrats and 13.8% of Republicans said violence would be justified. So Democrats, before you get on your high horse about January 6th, you should see the statistics actually say that more Democrats were ready to enact violence. Now, now these stats matter for the record because, again, this is the cultural environment that we're swimming in. And it's an environment that is increasingly tribalized. Now, I don't even blame us for the growing tribalization, though, because big point here. uh, Next slide. I think the, the growing division isn't mostly our fault. Rather, we are continually being swayed and split by powerful people and organizations that profit from fear and division and hate. They, they actually profit from it. More statistics for you. We're getting close to being done. Just hang with me, okay? I read a few years ago that after 10 likes, Facebook can accurately determine your political persuasion. After 50, they can predict more about you than your friends. After 100, they can predict more about you than your family. And after 300 likes, they can predict you better than you can predict you. And with that knowledge, the algorithms basically sort us into units that they can sell stuff to. No wonder the Trump campaign spent $107 million and the Biden campaign spent $94 million on Facebook ads this last election. On Facebook ads, not all the other, just Facebook ads, which is 150% growth compared to what they uh, spent in the 2016 election. Apparently, Facebook knows how to reach their base. Now, it's not just on screens, though. It's also in our physical geographical spaces. I've quoted some of these stats to you before, but um, most liberals um, are concentrated in 146 urban counties, urban dwellers in the United States of America, while most conservatives are concentrated in more suburban or rural areas. According to one study in 1976, less than 20, don't miss this, less than 25% of Americans lived in places where the presidential election was a landslide. Or in other words, we lived next door with, went to school with, attended worship services with people who, who voted differently than us. In contrast to that, in 2016, 80% of U.S. counties were landslide victories for either Trump or Clinton. Studies show we now watch different news stations, listen to different music, watch different TV shows, go to different churches, celebrate national holidays and traditions and religion in completely different ways, depending largely on where we live. Now, you would think that, that all these clearly defined tribes would at least have one positive side effect, right? Despite the fact that we know who we hate, we could at least know who we love. Like we could at least know who we trust. Tribes mean community, right? Tribes mean trust. Tribes mean friendship. Tribes mean the opposite of loneliness, right? Well, wrong, because in our country today, we, before COVID and still today, are going through an epidemic of both trust, uh, trust and loneliness. Tribes are growing, trust is not. Last set of stats for you. 
Check this out. Again, Pew Forum, 75% of Americans say trust in the federal government is shrinking. 64% say trust in other Americans is shrinking. 61% say you can't trust the media. Only 18% of those between 30 and 49 have a high level of personal trust. Only 11% of people from 18 to 29 have a high level of personal trust. Gen Z, according to these stats, is the least trusting generation in American history. While we're on Gen Z, Also, statistically, they are the loneliest generation in American history. One study said that nearly half of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. Half. And only half of Americans have meaningful in-person social relationships on a daily basis. Now, where do we go to deal with this loneliness, to deal with all this tension? Well, not to a friend, not to God in prayer, not to church, but instead... Studies show that we go to screens. It's where we spend our margins, where we spend our time. On average, the average American adult watches around five hours a day on TV and streaming services. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. We spend more time face to screen than we do to face, face to face. We wonder why, why we're lonely. It's interesting to me, the screen addiction, it's like the only really destructive addiction that we celebrate and affirm. You ever notice that? Like if your friend came up to you and you're like, man, I'm, I'm a binge drinker. You would not be like, cool. If your friend came up to you and said, I'm a binge eater, you wouldn't be, you'd be like, good for you, good luck this weekend. But if your friend came up to you and they're like, hey, you know what I'm gonna do this weekend? I'm gonna binge season three of Friends. You're like, I'm binging season four of, right? And you're like, you swap stories, give each other high fives and on you go. But it doesn't even fulfill us. Like for those of you who are addicted to your screens, you answer me, you answer me, true or false. Do you spend more time looking for shows on Netflix or watching them, right? You're just like flipping through trying to find something half the time that you're sitting there on the couch. And why? Because it's the new form of self-medication. It helps us turn our brain off. But when did we get to a place to where that's what we want out of life, to turn our brain off? And what's most sad about it all is that the church has been as vulnerable as those outside of it to all the statistics I just quoted to you. So back to our original question, this is the culture that we're living in, that we're swimming in. Some of you, those statistics, you're one of them. I gotta ask you, all that in mind, is Christian unity even possible anymore in our divided country? Or taking it one step further, is it even worth it? into this loneliness, into this polarization and division, Acts 2, Acts 4 speaks. This is the hope and the vision of church that it offers us. Acts chapter two, verse 37. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching and his words pierced their hearts. First sermon about Jesus' death and resurrection in public ever. His words pierced their hearts. And the crowds of the Jerusalem temple said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you, to your children, to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. 
Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation, save yourselves. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And so the church has begun. What did they do? This is all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, uh, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Fast forward, Acts 4.32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for all of his word. And what a beautiful vision that is of the church. Could you imagine being a part of something like that? If Acts is about nothing else, y'all, Acts is about the birth of the church. It's about community formation. In Acts 2, we see the church born, and for the rest of the book and every chapter after it, we see the church continuing to be planted, grown, and nurtured along. If the apostle Paul is nothing else, what is he? He's a church planner. He travels around planting churches, then he writes a bunch of letters to who? Back to the leaders and to the people of those churches so he can continue to nurture the church up. The New Testament is about the formation. It's about the formation of community, formation of the church. And it is a beautiful vision at times like Acts 2, at times like Acts 4, of what the church could look like if the church was working right. Scott McKnight, New Testament professor, um, in one of his books, I called the New Testament church this once. He called it a fellowship of difference. Y'all are the difference, right? We're the difference. We're a fe- it's kind of Lord of the Ringsy, isn't it? It's the fellowship of difference. And I love that because it implies all these different people with different sins and different backgrounds, different bumps and bruises in life coming together in unity under the lordship and grace of Jesus. So look, call me crazy, but despite the bleak statistics in our country, I still believe unity is possible for the church. That's because I believe all things are possible with God, and I believe that which unites us in Christ is still far, far greater than anything that could divide us. And not only do I believe that unity is possible, but I believe that unity is essential because Jesus didn't just die to save you from your individual sins, my friends. He died also to reconcile us with God and with others. And I don't believe that unity is just essential. I also believe that unity could be 
beautiful when we come together and we form a multi-class, multicultural, intergenerational collective of sinners united by grace when we bond ourselves eternally in Christ to one another and build a spiritual family. I believe the world pauses in awe and envy. And in the midst of all their loneliness, in the midst of all the despair, amidst all the hate being spewed, they see what our kingdom, the new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus actually looks like. I believe they want to be a part of it. Or at least some of them do. It's still possible. It's still possible. May Northeast be one of the churches that makes it possible. Now, the beautiful vision of the church aside in Acts, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer needs to have a word with us real quick today. Okay. Uh, if you don't know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, then, um, then you should. I believe he's one of the modern day saints of the 20th century. Um, in fact, I, if you know me, you know I read a lot of Bonhoeffer. I'm a Bonhoeffer fan. Basically, uh, Bonhoeffer uh, lived and, and died before he turned 40 years old um, in the Nazi, uh, the, the height and growth of the Nazi regime. In fact, he died in 1945 in the Flossenburg concentration camp. Not because he was a Jew, but because he was a German Christian who refused to conspire with the Third Reich and also refused to uh, conspire with the National Lutheran Church that was endorsing uh, Hitler's rise uh, to power. Now, again, I think he's one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, but I believe that Bonhoeffer wrote the most important book ever. This is my opinion, okay? You can have your own opinions about important books. I believe he wrote the most important book ever on Christian community. Um, it's called Life Together. And uh, if you like a little bit of heavy theological reading, you should read just the first 20 pages on community because it's absolutely brilliant. In it, he tells us what he learns under the tectonic pressures of Nazism as a member of the confessing church. In fact, Dietrich's uh, brand of like resisting Christianity was eventually persecuted. The confessing church was persecuted, pushed out of the public square. So you know what he did? Uh, he took a bunch of seminarians who he was teaching to this, uh, to this place called Finkenwald, and they lived together for a couple years in a house in this sort of scholastic but also monastic community. And in life together, he reports to us how they lived and what he learned during that time. And some of it is really, really basic, but he makes one point that is absolutely brilliant and relevant for us today, and I wanna show it to you. First, a couple of the basic points though, okay? These are worth uh, acknowledging. First, um, let's let Bonhoeffer deal with us for just a second, okay? At first, he says, Christian community is a gift, not a guarantee. That's point number one. Christian community is a gift, not a guarantee. Pretty basic, right? But a good reminder for us. Bonhoeffer writes, not all Christians partake of the grace of community. Just remind ourselves of that. The imprisoned, the lonely, uh, those uh, who are sick, those who live in the diaspora, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands, they stand alone. They know that visible community is grace. It is easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of the kingdom of God, he writes, a gift that can be taken from us any day. Or in other words, Bonhoeffer says, um, if you have a Christian or two in your life who loves you, then every once in a while you should be thankful for that because that is not a guarantee. We are so good about complaining about toxic Christians and toxic churches that we oftentimes forget to thank God for the few Christians in your life that actually love you. 
I get to watch every single week as the, nor- the sinners of Northeast Christian Church, and they're all sinners if you're new here, okay? but the, as the sinners of Northeast Christian Church rise up and they care for their people. They care for people going, I mean, the past year has been a case study of it as we've cared for people going through the worst sort of loss and the worst sort of grief and the worst sort of illness. They just show up with their time and they show up with their money. They show up with their presence. Like almost every week for the past year, I've gotten to stroke checks from our church to people in our church who are going through desperation because of your generosity. And they were reminded that they have a family here. Makes me proud. It's painful because of people are going through tough stuff, but it makes me proud of our church. And when we stroke those checks and show up for those people, I always think to myself, I wonder how people do it who don't have a church family. I wonder how they make it. I wonder how. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says, um, but stay on the first point here. He says, it's easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken from us any day. And don't, so this is good. He says, and that the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. Let me read that to you again. The time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. When I read that in Life Together, you know what I did? Um, I circled it. And I wrote next to it, February 2020. Because little did we know in February that the time of profound, or the time away from an experience of profound loneliness may be brief indeed. We didn't know then how much we would want smiles rather than masks. We didn't know then how much we would miss gathering together at church or hearing the church sing or going to a sports game. We didn't know then how fed up we would get with Zoom. In fact, we never even heard of Zoom at that point. But within two or three months, we hated it, right? And we didn't know, we just didn't know. So point number one, Bonhoeffer says, point number one, we need to remember, and we do need to remember right now. Let's not take it for granted, y'all. Christian community is a gift. It's not a guarantee, it's a gift. Second, this next point, again, not very brilliant, very basic, but important for us to remind ourselves of. Second, he says, Christian communities, second, are full of sins, Sinners and inevitable heartache. Need to remind ourselves of that. Bonhoeffer writes, Christian community is most often threatened from the very outset by the greatest danger. The danger of confusing Christian community with some wishful image of pious community. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and uh, if we're fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us Those, this is so good, those who love their dream of Christian community more than the actual Christian community itself become destroyers of the community in the end. Now, did you follow him? Okay, so he gets real practical after this. He goes on uh, to point out an experience that all of us will go through if uh, you are a Christian for long. He goes on to point out that eventually all of us uh, step into a faith community with high hopes. We find a new church, a new Bible study, a new small group, a new ministry. Maybe, maybe we are a young adult and for the first time we seek out our own church or, or maybe we're converted to Christianity and for, you know, for the first time we come to church and we have these high expectations. Like we think everybody's gonna love one another and then we get on the Instagram of the church and people look super cool and they wear vibey clothes and you know, like people are raising their hands and the room's full and somebody's wearing a worship hat. And you're like, there's just a worship hat there. And you just like, you like fall in love with that church, right? Because everybody looks young 
like me and I want to go to a church where there's a bunch of young people, right? And so this, and we come to the church with these expectations, right? But then, then this thing happens. It happens to all of us. You get to the community and you're like, oh. Like you realize that whoever runs the Instagram account for that church deserves a raise, <laughs> Right, because they took the pictures at just the right angle so that the room looked full. And the people who were dressed in cool clothes, that was just the worship leaders. <laughs> Not anybody else. And, and, and there are some young people, but there's also some old people and some in the middle people and some weird people and some downright mean people at that church. And before you know it, tick, tick, your dream of perfect community explodes right in front of you. And you leave. And this is why so many people bounce, like they church hop and church shop and bounce from one church to the other, right? Because they go from one community to another with these idealistic, dreamy visions, they doesn't, doesn't measure up. Third, that in mind, Bonhoeffer says this, and I think this is where the brilliant comes in. Third point about a community, he says, you, if that's you, you are the greatest threat to Christian community. The greatest threat to Christian community aren't the sinners, the greatest threat to Christian community are those who expect not to find the sins and the sinners. Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. They enter the community with their demands, set up their own law and judge one another even God accordingly. This is how church is supposed to be. These are my expectations. These are my pet doctrines. These are my unforgivable sins. You better get in line or I'm out and the church is a failure. They stand adamant, he writes, a living reproach to all others in the community. They act as if they have to create the Christian community. Whatever does not go their way, they call a failure. When their idealized image is shattered, which it's always shattered, they see the community breaking into pieces. So they first become accusers of other Christians in the community, then accusers of God, and finally the desperate accusers of themselves. Now this was written like 80 plus years ago, but it might as well have been written today. Because this articulates well the faith deconstruction process that so many young people are going through right now as they walk away from the faith. They come into Christian community with high expectations. Then the community fails them, and so they find another community, and it fails them, and the Christian community just fails them again and again and again until they turn and walk. What are we to do about it, Dietrich? What are we to do about it? Well, here's the last point. And I love this. He brings us back to the heart the gospel. Bonhoeffer says community will work corporately. This is the solution. Community will only work corporately to the extent we understand individually the grace, the grace, the grace we all receive in Christ. Bonhoeffer actually goes on and he asks, uh, he asks each of us to ask ourselves five questions when we get frustrated with Christian community. Here are the five. First, he says, uh, ask yourself, is not what has been given us, namely uh, other believers who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of God's grace enough? Isn't it enough? Basically, he turns your judgmentalism back on you and he's like, oh, those church people are hard to put up with. Well, so are you. Anytime... People meet my wife, Lindsay, and I, and they get to know us. They always say the same thing to us. They say, look, y'all, Lindsay's a saint. 
And that's basically what Bonhoeffer's saying about you. He's like, if that church puts up with you, they're a bunch of saints. Second, he says, consider this, this question. Is the gift of God any less immeasurably great even on the most difficult and distressing days of a Christian community? Is it any less great? Or in other words, in that moment when they're the worst, and they are the worst, trust me, I agree with you, but in that moment when they're the worst, we get an opportunity to see neighbor love, no better enemy love, no better God's love on display. Because if he can love them of all people, if he was willing to die for them of all people, oh, the reckless, unconditional love of God. And he did die for them. Third question, he says, even when sin and misunderstanding burdens the common life, is not the one who sins still a person with whom I stand under the word of Christ? He reminds us here that our love is not contingent on the worthiness of someone else, is it? He asks us, true or false? Jesus said, love your neighbor, except when they're annoying. True or false? Jesus said, love your enemy, except if they're a Democrat. True or false? Jesus said, uh, do unto others as they have done unto you. False, false, and false. Fourth, he says, will not another Christian sin? be an occasion for me? You should ask yourself this when Christian community fails you. Will not another Christian sin be an occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? No translation needed there, right? And last, he says, therefore, will not the very moment of great disillusionment with my brother and sister be incomparably healthy for me because it so thoroughly teaches me that both of us can never, ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and that one deed that really binds us together, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Come on, my German brother, take us to church. So look, let's give it up. Let's give it up. Let's give up the vision of a perfect church. You wouldn't belong there anyways, you little snot. <laughs> let's, give it up. let's give up the vision of a church where everybody looks like me and acts like me and votes and moralizes like me, who has the same pet sins or palatable sins as I do. Let's give up the vision of a church where my heart never gets broken, where my leaders never fail, where my friends never let me down or where the sermons never offend my sensibilities every once in a while. Let's give up the vision of a church that doesn't exist anyways, and instead, let's recapture the vision of the one thing that's truer than anything ever to have existed. That's Jesus on the cross at whose feet the ground is level for all sinners, and let's bind ourselves together in the desperation and thankfulness that we feel for his grace. Will you stand with me? Stand with me right now. I want to read you one last quote from Bonhoeffer. And then we are going to sing that hymn that we sang earlier together and take communion to close. This is what he wrote. It's an important reminder. He says, our community with one another in Christ consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual, not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. 
the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all of our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. Let's sing together.